Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Well, this morning, I invite you to take your Bibles again and turn to the book of Judges, where we find ourselves in chapter 8, looking at the conclusion of this story of Gideon. Now, so far, we've seen God call a very fearful and hesitant Gideon to save Israel from the hands of Midian. We've seen God demonstrate his care, assuring Gideon uh, of his power and his faithfulness, and we've seen God work a miraculous salvation defeating the Midianites through a little band of 300 men with clay pots and trumpets. Well, we left off last week with Gideon and several other tribes chasing after these fleeing Midianites who had been defeated in the camp. And today we're going to get the rest of the story. While chapters 6 and 7 really focused on and highlighted the Lord's work in bringing about this salvation, chapter 8 tells us how Gideon and Israel respond to God's salvation. So if you have your your Bibles with you, Judges chapter 8, let's read this story together. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, that's Gideon, what is this that you've done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he had said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, When the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns in the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of East, For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? 
And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmanah, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. And as the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and beside the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Now Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after Baals and made Baal-barith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another passage of your word, and we ask that you would give us wisdom as we seek to learn more about you and to understand what you would tell us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's true in many areas of life, isn't it, that how you finish determines your success or failure much more than how you start. This is certainly true in sports. I'm a sports fan, and I remember the, the poor 1995 California Angels who had a fantastic season for the first two-thirds. In August, they were crushing all of Major League Baseball, leading their division by an astounding 11 and a half games with less than a quarter of the season to go, only to lose 27 of their last 39 games, fail to make the playoffs in a season that no one remembers. Of course, it works the other way, too. 2011 New York Giants found that out. They had a very blandly mediocre season, barely winning more games than they lost, giving up more points than they scored. 
But they squeaked into the playoffs and proceeded to dominate every team on their way to a Super Bowl victory in a season that everyone remembers as an astounding success. Because as the saying goes, all's well if it ends well. Well, unfortunately, in Judges chapter 8, we find that all does not end well for Israel and for Gideon. This chapter reveals that despite God's gracious salvation, Israel's hearts and Gideon's heart are still enslaved to sin. And we'll see this enslavement to sin both in the completion of the battle and in the aftermath of the battle. So let's, let's start by looking at the completion of the battle. That's really covered by verses 1 through 21. And as we begin, I can only imagine what Israel must have been thinking as the news of this nighttime victory spread throughout Israel. After 20 years of starvation and oppression, after 20 years of theft and humiliation at the hands of a far more powerful foe, God has unexpectedly delivered Israel. What a, what a thrill. What a joy. We'd expect maybe a, a, an extended joyful season of worship as they praise the God who delivered them. Except that's not what we find. Instead, we find a series of selfish bickerings going on among God's people. And it all starts with Ephraim. Ephraim comes and accuses Gideon. You see it there in verses 1 and 2. They accuse him of overlooking their honor. Now, as one commentator notes, Ephraim in the Old Testament is kind of the prima donna of the Israelite tribes. This is not the first nor the last time we're going to find Ephraim complaining about their image and status. But they come to Gideon and say, what is this you've done to us not to call us to go with you to battle? In other words, how dare you leave us out and rob us of a chance for glory? Of course, there's all sorts of problems with Ephraim's comments. To begin, they'd had 20 years to fight against the Midianites if they'd wanted to, and they never did. There's also probably a pretty good chance that prior to this, if they had been outnumbered, you know, 50 to 1 or so, they probably wouldn't have gone out with Gideon to battle. But the most important problem is that this is exactly the response God had attempted to undermine by bringing about the salvation through the measly group of 300 men. He had tried to bring about salvation so that no one in Israel could claim any credit or any honor or any glory for the victory. No one should be receiving any honor here except the Lord. But Ephraim hasn't learned that lesson. They want to give the credit to Gideon, and they want some of the credit for themselves. Well, Gideon makes peace with a humble reply. He says, look, Ephraim, you killed the two princes of Midian. You've accomplished more than I have. And his humble reply sort of brings some, some rocky peace to the situation. But Gideon's problems aren't over. Next, he calls on two Israelite towns east of the Jordan River, Succoth and Penuel. And he asks them to give food to his 300 men who are exhausted and weary after the battle. Now, they refuse pointing out that Gideon has not yet captured these Midianite kings. Now, I think on the surface, at least, we should give some grace to these two towns. Gideon's won an important victory, but he still has just 300 men. And as we read in the next verses, the Midianites still have 15,000. So it's still 50 to 1 
against Gideon if we're looking from a numbers perspective. And of course, given the last 20 years of oppression, the concerns of these towns are maybe not entirely unreasonable. Or at least they wouldn't be unreasonable, except that God has just demonstrated His power and His character and His determination to save Israel from their enemies. Rationally, perhaps, the town's response makes sense, but theologically it does not. And their hearts are exposed for elevating their own fears and their own concerns for their, for their safety above their trust in God's Word and in God's character and the faithfulness He has just demonstrated to His people. And so while Ephraim was arrogant and concerned about their own honor and Succoth and Penuel are afraid and unable to trust the Lord, they've both failed to learn the lesson of Judges chapter 7. The lesson of Judges chapter 7 was that the Lord's hand delivers His people. And the Lord's hand can save His people even when it's 500 against one. He deserves the glory, and He can be trusted to care for His people no matter what. That's the lesson we've seen. And that's the lesson His people have failed to to learn. Now for Gideon, these interactions with his fellow Israelites must have been frustrating, but they're probably a good reminder for us that God's people are quite susceptible to the deceits of sin. And any one of us who spends a lifetime, even in the church, are likely to be impacted and even hurt by our sins and the sins of one another. This is not an excuse, but it is part of the expectation of living in close fellowship with fellow sinners. How many times have we been frustrated by the fears or anxieties of others and what they are not willing to do as a result? Or how many of us have been hurt by the pride or self-focus of others in the body of Christ? And which of us has not lost focus on the word and character of God and so have hurt others because of our fears, anxieties, or pride? Which is why the New Testament emphasizes over and over and over again That if we're going to image Christ, we're going to have to be living gracious lives of bearing with one another, forgiving one another, overlooking the sins of one another, humbling ourselves and seeking forgiveness from one another, holding short accounts for the sake of Christ, who died for all of his people to unite us to himself and to one another. So this is a good object lesson of what it's like to live amongst God's sinful people and why the New Testament would call us to this Christ-like moving towards one another in gracious forgiveness. But we should not just point the figure at all of Israel because Gideon's responses are less than perfect as well. After all, Gideon probably should have had some sympathy for Succoth and Peniel and their fear of Midian. It was just a couple days earlier that Gideon was hiding in a wine press and protesting to God that there's no way he could deliver Israel from Midian. And yet, after God responded to his fears with patience, going to great extent to assure him of his character and his faithfulness, Gideon does not reflect God's character to his fellow Israelites, but responds swiftly and harshly. I think the real problem, though, is that Gideon clearly views the response of Succoth and Penuel not as a distrust in the Lord, but as a personal insult. He doesn't go to these towns and say, look, remember the character of our God. You can trust Him. 
He says, how dare you taunt me? See that in verse 15. After he captured the Midianite kings, he says, well, here they are, these guys about whom you taunted or insulted me, as it might be translated. Gideon's concern is not for God's honor, honor, but for his own honor. He is upset that these towns doubt him and insult him, as if Gideon was the one who deserves their trust. And he emphasizes his expectation by thrashing the leaders of Succoth and killing the men of Penuel, and a response that smacks much more of personal vengeance than it does of godly justice. Then if there's any doubt about Gideon's heart, his treatment of the Midianite kings confirms our suspicions. If you look down at verses 18 and 19, we find out for the first time that these two kings had killed some of Gideon's own brothers. He asks, where are the men that you killed at Tabor? And they said, well, they were just like you. And he says, those were my brothers. And Gideon says then that his decision of whether or not to kill these two kings hinges based on how they treated his brothers. In other words, Gideon's guiding principle is not God's justice. It's not God's honor or God's word. It's his revenge on behalf of his family. And I think probably the most ironic statement in this passage comes in verse 21. If you look down there, the Midianite kings dare Gideon to kill them. And they say, as the man is, so is his strength, upon which Gideon kills them both. But really, as the man is, so is his strength? What happened to the weakness of men highlighting the glory of God? What happened to my grace is sufficient for you? My power is made perfect in weakness. What happened to the man of weakness who relied on God's strength and worshiped saying, God has given our enemies into our hands? What happened to the man who heard God say, the glory must be mine so that Israel cannot say, my own hand has saved me? That man now acts in a show of human strength at the taunt of a pagan king rather than according to the word of God. And so the battle, which began with God whittling down Israel to a tiny impossible-to-win band of guys with clay pots and trumpets so that he alone would receive the glory, ends with Israel jockeying with one another over who gets the most honor, distrusting one another and distrusting God's intent to save them, while Gideon responds with personal vengeance and a display of human strength instead of humble reliance upon God. This is a matter of days. I think it reminds us how quickly we can lose sight of the faithfulness and the glory of God and turn to our own pride and our own desires and our own frustrations. My guess is that you are like me, and sometimes this is the story of our week where we can come on Sunday morning and be awed by the glory of God as we worship together. And then the week is a steady battle as the intrusions of our own frustrations and desires and preoccupations would pull us from the character and word of our God into a daily battle with ourselves. But if we have any doubt about where Israel's hearts and Gideon's hearts are, the situation is then confirmed by how they respond in the aftermath of the battle, and that comes in verses 22 to 35. You see, Israel's first words in verse 22, they come to Gideon 
and ask him to establish himself as king. Rule over us and your son and your grandson after us, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, a few hundred years later, God is going to tell Samuel that when Israel asks for a king, that request is a rejection of the Lord as their king. And this is clearly the case here, especially given Israel's statement to Gideon. You notice what they say? Rule over us. Why? Because you have saved us from Midian. There is that poverty of perspective of who God is. Not even God's efforts to cut Israel down to a band of 300 keeps Israel against all rationality from giving the credit to Gideon and that band. But I think the real lesson here is is not so much about how awesome Israel thinks Gideon is. The real lesson is the poverty of their view of God. They don't consider God. They don't worship God. In fact, other than one statement from Gideon, God is not mentioned in this chapter. He's completely absent from their minds altogether as they move forward after this victory. Now, Gideon offers the perfect response to Israel in verse 23. He says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Well said, Gideon. Unfortunately, the old adage, actions speak louder than words, tell us that this was just words. You know, history does give us several examples of men who refused power on principle and acted with humility. Cincinnatus was a a great Roman man who was given complete dictatorial power to rescue Rome in the state of crisis. But after he solved the crisis, after just 15 days, he gave up that power and returned to his farm for the remainder of his days. And he actually became an inspiration to George Washington, who after two terms as president refused voluntarily to run for a third term and retired to Mount Vernon out of the public eye, citing Cincinnatus' example and giving up and refusing power, which actually, according to tradition at least, led King George to marvel and say he is the greatest man in the world. But Gideon does not belong with these examples, despite what he said. Because while formally rejecting the kingship, Gideon immediately responds to act like a king for the rest of the chapter. He asks the people to give him all the earrings from their spoil, very much like the tax or tribute that would be paid to the victorious king. Then he uses those gold earrings to make an ephod which he keeps in his city. Now the ephod was the ornate outer garment that the high priest would wear going before the Lord to discern the Lord's will for Israel. And by creating an alternate ephod and setting it up at his house in his city, Gideon is setting himself up as the one everyone should come to to find out God's will, rather than the high priest at the tabernacle as God had commanded. Gideon is telling Israel, come to me. I'm the one that God talks to. I'm the one you should come to for any guidance. Well, then we find out in verse 30 that Gideon also lived like a king. He gathered many wives and concubines and had many sons. This is just the line that is given about all the kings of Israel and the nations after that. He even goes so far as to name one of his sons in verse 31, Abimelech, which is translated, my father is king. And so here is Gideon, living like a king despite his words. 
He's gone from being like a second Moses who protested his weakness, but then faithfully obeyed the Lord, bringing about God's salvation, to being a second Aaron, who despite using the right words, took the people's golden earrings and made a golden image in violation of God's command, leading the people to go after that image rather than the Lord himself. Gideon is now living as a man of strength whose actions draw attention to himself and his sufficiency rather than the glory of God. So if all's well, if it ends well, we find ourselves at the end of Judges 8 continuing a downward spiral that we've seen all throughout the book of Judges. You know, up until now, Israel has quickly returned to sin and worshiping false gods after a judge's death. But here, the judge himself ignores God's command and actually leads the people into false worship as as we find that the ephod that he made was a snare to all of Israel and to Gideon and his family. Despite God's glorious salvation, we find sin continuing to exert its deceit and its power over Israel's heart. So that by the time we get to the end of chapter 8, as one commentator sums it up, it says, very little of spiritual significance has happened in Israel after God's glorious salvation. You know, when we read chapters 6 and 7, which were all about God's care and faithfulness and power and rescue of his people, our hearts are encouraged, aren't they? When we see the faithfulness of our God. But what about a chapter like this? What are we supposed to learn as we look at these petty and pernicious sins on display? Well, remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things were written down for our example. So what do we learn from the Word of God this morning? Well, I think there's at least two things. First, this story highlights the dangerous temptation we face in success. Last week, we said that the blessing of weakness is that it forces us into dependence upon God. But enter the realm of success And we are tempted to begin to rely on or congratulate ourselves. In fact, there's often a much greater temptation to sin when we are successful or when things are going well than there is in the face of suffering and failure. In fact, we see this all throughout Scripture. Again and again, we're going to hear from Israel's kings. When they relied on the Lord, the Lord blessed them, but in the blessing... They turn from him. I think of Second Chronicles 26, 5 and 16, which says of King Uzziah, king of Judah, he set himself to seek the Lord in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. We see this all throughout Scripture. We, we see it around us as well. I know many of you have listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which describes the ministry of Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill Church in Seattle. The church began in the late 90s, focused on reaching an unreached city. It bore fruit and grew. But by 2008, the success of the church, which had grown to over 10,000 members, led to a shift in goals in the leadership. 
They began to focus on expanding the brand of Mars Hill. Their strategic plan was focused on numbers and influence, while leadership developed a quickness to ostracize and condemn any who questioned or opposed them. Until just seven years later, in 2015, the church collapsed in the wake of an oppressive leadership environment and ethically questionable decisions. It's a parable in our own day of the same thing we see, the temptations of success. But this temptation to take credit or focus on ourselves is one we all face. It's not meant to point a finger at one church in Seattle. As I reflect on this passage and think about how tremendously God has blessed us at Westminster in, in recent years, I think we must be aware of and on guard against the temptations that can come with success. And so may we May we always be on guard against and beware of how easy it could be for us as a church to slip from glorifying God to promoting Westminster or taking credit or or pride in things that have happened here that are the blessings God has given and He alone deserves the credit. And and individually, how many times has success led us to to rely on ourselves or or to rely on our plans or our abilities or to let those self-congratulatory thoughts slip in of, boy, we really did a great job that time, didn't we? This week, I I was imagining a sequel to that famous fable of the tortoise and the hare. I was imagining a, a sequel in which, coming off his stunning victory, the tortoise begins to think, you know, I am pretty awesome, aren't I? And, and you know, I really am faster than this hare, which leads to a stunning reversal, goading him into an embarrassing loss in a highly publicized rematch. It's funny to think about how it might play out in a parable, but, but this is what plays out in our hearts so easily. As a success or a blessing leads us to pat ourselves on the back, to take pride, to be frustrated with us, others who don't give us the credit. Which is what leads Tim Keller, I think, to say there is a terrible spiritual danger involved in any blessing we receive. Success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts in their sinfulness are so desperate to believe that we contribute to our salvation or to our ministry fruit or to our successes. I think Gideon's example gives us some signs to watch out for in our lives, some signs that success might be leading us down a wrong path. If we say with our lips that God deserves all the credit, but we begin to desire or expect the recognition of others, we may be falling into the temptation of success. If we respond in anger or defensiveness, when someone doesn't recognize our success or questions or opposes our plans and our efforts, we might be falling into the temptations of success. And whether it's our church or our parenting style or our educational method, if we decide that we or the wise decisions or methods we've chosen are what people need to grow spiritually instead of the work of the Spirit of God Himself, We may be falling to the temptation of success instead of giving honor to God alone who brings the fruit. And so both personally and together as a church, we must continually cling to the sole sufficiency of God in every move that we make. We need to be regularly in His Word so that our minds and our hearts and our souls 
are reminded by passages like Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And passages like Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it in vain. We need to watch out for those self-focused thoughts that desire credit for the good things that happen and quickly confess them to the Lord in a rhythm of repentance. Only a rhythm of repentance that acknowledges our sinful thoughts and draws near to the Lord. Only that rhythm of repentance will provide an antidote to the temptations of success and keep us humbly dependent upon the Lord alone to the glory of His name alone. Well, secondly and lastly, I think this chapter highlights for us our desperate need of a judge who can actually change our hearts. So there's been many judges in Israel, and at the end of every one of them, we find our hearts in the same place of sin. Because the real problem, as God told Israel at the beginning of this story through that prophet that he sent, the real problem has never been with Midianites or Moabites or Philistines or, or anyone else. The real problem has always been Israel's determination to do what they wanted to do and to live like the world around them rather than as God has called them to. The real problem has always been their rebellion against Yahweh, the God who created them and saved them and called them to be His so that they are justly earning for themselves again and again the discipline and consequences that come. And I think if any one of us is honest... If we look at our own hearts, we have the same desperate need. Because the reality is that we are all born with the same fundamental problem. Our hearts, each of our hearts, naturally and eagerly resist God's rule over our lives. Each of our hearts asserts our freedom to do what we want and our worthiness of God's good opinion and how we've chosen to live our lives. As the Bible says, all of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if the Bible is right that the wages of sin, the just payment for our sin, is death, then we need a Savior who's capable of a much better salvation than Gideon could have offered. We need a Savior who would be faithful to the end. We need a Savior who can take the penalty for our sin we deserved. A Savior who can break the power of sin over us. A Savior who can reconcile us again to God whom we have offended by our sin. Which, of course, is exactly what Jesus came to do. As He gave up His life and His death on the cross and was raised again by the power of God. As He became the judge who makes a very significant difference spiritually rescuing and changing the hearts of anyone who would put their faith in Him by the power of His Spirit, that we might be with Him rather than justly condemned by Him for all eternity. And so as we come to the end of Gideon's story this morning, may we come to Jesus. May we rest in Him. May we find our joy in His salvation. And may we never move from our place of dependence upon Him to the glory of his name alone. Let's pray. God, we read a passage of Scripture like Judges 8. And to be honest, our first reaction often is to be astounded at Israel's pettiness and foolishness 
and sinfulness, how could they respond in pride and distrust and self-reliance so quickly after your lesson of your sufficiency and power? Father, don't let our hearts sit and point the finger. Would you search us and know us and show us where our own heart longs for credit or seeks to rely on ourselves? And would you draw us again into complete dependence upon you? Particularly, would you draw us again to the name of Jesus, who has died in our place, that he might save us from our sins. May we rest in him, find joy in him, and rely on him, and worship him day after day to the glory of his name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.